Ronald, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan Jack, known to their Canadian neighborhood as hardworking and humble citizens, were a modest, quiet family of 1980s Prince George, British Columbia. However, their diligent nature and simple desires were cut short by unexplainable, unsolved disappearances on August 2nd, 1989, leaving all who knew them across the Cheslata Carrier Nation and Western Canada as a whole, grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the Jack family disappearance and the confounding mystery along the Highway of Tears. This is Cold Case Detective. Ronald Paul Jack was born in British Columbia, Canada, on March 29, 1963, taken care of by his mother, Mabel Jack. Not much is known about Ronald, better known by his youthful moniker of Ronnie, or his upbringing, other than the fact he grew up on the south side of Burns Lake, a village with a population of about 1,800 in central British Columbia. Burns Lake is a small community with a heavy influence on the industrial economy, a hub for loggers, miners, and sawmillers. It's also the home to many nations of indigenous people, including the Cheslata Carrier Nation, of which Ronnie Jack belonged to. The Cheslata Carrier Nation, also translated to People Who Go Upon Water, is a first nation of the Nechaco River with deep roots in the central interior of British Columbia. The Carrier people have a cultural history with the ancient trade network now known as the Grease Trail, a route known for the trading and hauling of Yulacon oil. It's a rich oil from native fish in the rivers across the Pacific Northwest all the way to Alaska. The Cheslata Carrier Nation is spread across eight reserves, based on the south shores of Francois Lake, and has about 340 current-day members, living both on and off the reservations. Along with those approximately 340 members was Doreen and Jack, a fellow native to the Carrier people and childhood friend of Ronnie. Doreen was born on April 24, 1963. She has a more well-known, yet darker, upbringing. Doreen had four other sisters by the name of Marlene, Laureen, Jocelyn, and Charlize, fostering a close relationship with each of them early on in life. Their mother left when they were toddlers, leaving them at the hands of their incredibly abusive father. Marlene Jack would later speak at a panel in 2017 discussing the tribulations her sisters endured and the horrifying stories of sexual assault and authoritative punishment dealt by their father and the men he'd bring home after nights of drinking. Marlene did her best to protect her younger sister Doreen from the violence, but there weren't many places the sisters could escape to to avoid the wrath of their father and his cronies. 
All that being said, the evil nature of the family's patriarch wasn't the only thing to define Doreen and her sisters. They truly did hold a close bond with one another. They enjoyed hanging out at the rodeo in the summer months and racing cars with their uncle. Marlene loved to tell the story of a time when Doreen and her uncle raced on the highway between Burns Lake and Prince George, with Doreen coming out victorious when their uncle was pulled over for speeding by the highway patrolman. It was these happy, flashbulb memories that kept the spirit of the sisters ablaze amidst troubled times at home. Sadly, the tight-knit sisterhood frayed at the seams later on when Doreen, Marlene, and the others were sent to Lejack Residential School in Fraser Lake. It was here the nuns in charge would separate the girls when they came together for fellowship, roughly pulling them apart and telling them that they'd be useless when they were older to try and keep them in line. The demeaning tutelage eventually wore the sisters down, and they left the school without much volition, scarred by those who were meant to guide them into adulthood with confidence. Afterwards, Doreen and her sisters split up for good. Marlene moved to Vancouver's downtown east side, where she struggled with alcohol addiction and homelessness. She would occasionally talk to Doreen on the phone, but they basically fell out of touch too when Doreen settled in with her childhood friend, Ronnie Jack. Together, the couple had two baby boys. First, Russell Fabian Jack on February 28th, 1980, followed by Ryan Paul Jack on July 26th, 1985. The family resided at a small apartment complex on Strathcona Avenue in Prince George, BC, with Ronnie working at a nearby sawmill and Doreen at home tending to their sons. Their home life was also filled with some aggressive incidents as well, dealing with occasional domestic unrest and frequent arguments. In the late 1980s, Ronnie injured his back while at work at the sawmill and had to quit, leaving the family on welfare and struggling to pay the bills whilst caring for Russell and Ryan. Just as they were on the brink of extreme poverty and potential homelessness, the Jack family's prayers were seemingly answered when Ronnie encountered the offer of a lifetime to finally get their lives on track. That is, until the track didn't exist, but rather led to Highway 16, an infamous route of tragedy and misfortune in the law of British Columbia crime. Let's now turn to the timeline of events that led to the unsolved disappearance of the Jack family. On the night of Tuesday, August 1st, 1989, Ronnie Jack spends an evening at the First Lita Pub, located at 1744 Strathcona Avenue in Prince George, British Columbia. The pub is an infamous watering hole and favorite bar of the Prince George locals, sitting just a few blocks away from the Jack family home. Ronnie knew the area like the back of his own hand, but found himself at the first liter under hard times, recently laid off work due to back pain and surviving on the bare minimum of government money with his wife Doreen and his two sons, Russell and Ryan. At some point after dinner time, an unidentified man approaches Ronnie and sits at the bar next to him. He is described as a bearded and burly figure that the regulars at first liter don't remember seeing around town. The bearded man strikes up a conversation with Ronnie, who opens up about his family's impending doom from the struggles with finding work and putting food on the table. A few minutes into the conversation, the bearded man presents Ronnie with a golden opportunity, a chance at redemption and hope that must have felt like winning the lottery. He tells Ronnie about an employment gig at a logging camp 40 kilometers west of the Bednesti area. 
in the vicinity of Klukul's Lake. He says it's the perfect job for Ronnie, with his history and manual labor at the sawmill, and a way to reset his finances for the future of his family. Ronnie then asks the bearded man about his wife, Doreen. The bearded man has a solution for her too, claiming the camp to be like a ranch of sorts, with an entire kitchen full of like-minded workers. He says Doreen can join in on the endeavor as a cook, and make some money herself, only sweetening the deal in the hungry eyes of Ronnie Paul. But a couple of serendipitous moments later, Ronnie realizes a roadblock is sitting firmly in his path. His two young boys, who are of no age to either stay at home by themselves, let alone work at a logging camp. Yet again, the bearded man bears good news. He tells Ronnie that with the abundance of families at the ranch, there is daycare provided for parents who work, but need someone to watch over their children. He quickly assures Ronnie that Russell and Ryan will be looked after, and he need not to worry. By the end of the conversation, Ronnie beams with awe and gives thanks to the bearded man, who tells Ronnie to gather his family and pack up their belongings immediately, as they can leave later that night and head to the camp. Ronnie mentions that neither he nor Doreen own a vehicle, to which the bearded man offers to drive them. A few hours before the clock strikes midnight, Ronnie Jack walks out of the first liter pub feeling like a new man, like an explorer who has just discovered a cavern of silver and riches after trekking through miles of fear and insecurity. He hurries home and shares the news with Doreen and the kids. They gather their things and prepare for the journey ahead. At 11.16 p.m. that night, Ronnie enthusiastically phones his brother and tells him about the conversation with the bearded man and the job opportunity at the logging camp. A couple of hours later, Ronnie calls his mother, Mabel, up in Burns Lake neighborhoods where they grew up. He shares the same information he told his brother, adding that he and Doreen planned to stay 10 to 14 days before returning home so Russell could start the next school year on time. Mabel wishes the family good luck and looks forward to hearing about their time at the camp once they return. Ronnie hangs up the phone, and this is the last confirmed contact the Jack family ever makes with their extended relatives. In the very, very early morning hours of Wednesday, August 2nd, 1989, at exactly 1.26am, Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan Jack are seen leaving their home at 2116 Strathcona Avenue and climbing into a four-wheel drive, dark-colored pickup truck driven by the bearded man. This is the last confirmed sighting of each family member. Over three weeks pass, and no one hears from either Ronnie or Doreen. They are officially reported missing on Friday, August 25th, 1989. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police quickly launch an investigation in late August. Authorities search for the logging camp in question, but find no evidence that such a place exists. They interview other patrons at the First Liter pub, and send out missing persons flyers with both information on the Jack family and the bearded man. However, no trace is ever established, and the precious hours after the report is filed are quickly gone in the night. The case grows cold over six long years, before a significant tip finally comes in to RCMP airwaves early on a chilly Sunday morning, January 28th, 1996, when at 8.33 a.m., an unidentified man makes a garbled call to the Vanderhoof Police Department. It lasts only around 10 seconds and is incredibly hard to discern, but the man can be heard saying, quote, 
The Jack family are buried in the south end of, and then an inaudible word, followed by ranch. The name of whoever's ranch is mentioned cannot be made out, and the tip is sadly thought to be useless, even after consulting audio experts to clean up the quality. In the following days, RCMP officers take their best guess at what the man could be saying in the clip, and believe he may have said, the Jack family are buried in the south end of Geordie's ranch. However, after searching a real-life ranch called Geordie's in the general area, no sign of the Jack family is unearthed. When investigators go back to the source of the phone call, they are finally able to trace the telephone's origins later that winter. They discover the call was made from a line in the Stony Brook, BC area, near Vanderhoof. In fact, police found that there had been a house party in the same time frame the call had come through, explaining why the audio was so muffled, and they interview the guests who attended that night. Despite the breakthrough, the specific male caller is never identified, and once more, no new leads are surfaced in the hunt for the Jack family. The next and final major tip in the case wouldn't come until more recently, when, just after the 30th anniversary of the disappearances, the RCMP announced an official search at a property on the Saker's First Nation Reserve, just south of Vanderhoof, British Columbia. From August 28th through to August 30th, 2019, RCMP detectives carry out their search under the close watch and support of the Saker's First Nation elected officials and tribal elders. They scan the grounds using bulky equipment, including ground-penetrating radar systems. Again, no trace of the Jack family is found. A month later, in September of 2019, Doreen's sister Marlene conducts several interviews with the Canadian media, claiming that a recent tip containing specific information related to the Jack family disappearances is being thoroughly considered by the RCMP and the surviving members of the extended family. What this tip is, is still, to this day, unknown. But both Marlene and the RCMP continue to ask that anyone with ideas relative to the case come forward, as all avenues are still being considered. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. In a mystery, with over 30 years worth of materials and nearly 60 banker boxes stuffed with investigation documents, there is hardly any public information detailed by the RCMP regarding the Jack family disappearance case files. There have been leads and a few clues strewn about, sure, but even the relatives of Ronnie and Doreen Jack haven't been privy to the details researched and analysed by detectives. Thus, we are left without any obvious fingerprints or vital documents from which to draw any reliable conclusions. What we do have, however, is a very detailed description of the bearded man seen with Ronnie Jack at the First Liter pub 
who offered him and Doreen jobs at a logging camp in addition to childcare. Henceforth, he will be referred to as the first Lita suspect, whom authorities believe to be the most pivotal figure related to the family's disappearance. There were two separate witnesses who attended the pub the night Ronnie spoke with the first Lita suspect, and each gave descriptions of the man to the RCMP. He was described as a white male, most likely of European descent, standing somewhere between six feet and six feet five inches tall. His hair was reddish brown and fell down to the bottom of his ears, parted to one side. While his skin was of a clear complexion, his face was covered by a mustache and a full beard, measuring around one to one and a half inches long. The first Lita suspect was certainly hefty, but not necessarily fat, ranging from anywhere between 200 to 275 pounds. At the time in August of 1989, the witnesses figured the man to be of middle age, possibly 35 to 40 years old. However, with a fair amount of facial hair, it's thought that the suspect could either be older or younger than the anticipated age group. On the night he spoke to Ronnie, the first Lita suspect wore a hat, a red colored checkered work shirt, faded blue jeans, a blue nylon jacket of waist length, and work boots designed with leather fringes over the toes. For an even better image of the suspect's face, check out the two RCMP sketches provided in our case photo document listed in the episode's description. In the years since these sketches and descriptions were released to the public, no one that we know of has come forward with a sighting or confirmation of who the first Lita suspect could be. Of course, it is possible the RCMP has received such tips and refused to share with us the identities to protect the investigation, but as of now, we have no such lead. If the face of this man looks or sounds like someone you may know or remember from the Prince George area in British Columbia or anywhere around Western Canada in general, please contact the proper authorities. It's also important that we remember these details are 30 years old, so the physical features will have changed and the man, if still alive, is most likely between 65 and 70 years old. The first Lita suspect may not be a killer, but he certainly has answers that will provide a route towards justice in finding the fate of the Jack family. Let us now turn to the most prominent theories surrounding this unsolved mystery. With the lack of detailed information released to the public by the RCMP, there just hasn't been an abundance of theories discussed regarding who the first Lita suspect may be or what happened to the Jack family. However, with the recent update in the case last September, it has renewed interest amongst sleuths and armchair detectives alike around the world. The newest theories revolve around men who fit the basic outline of the first leader suspect, a persuasive salesman with sinister motivations. One of the hypothetical offenders discussed is a man named Richard Beasley, well known for his infamous moniker, the Craigslist Killer. In 2013, Richard was tried and convicted for killing three men after soliciting work for a job via Craigslist in 2011. These false ads lured vulnerable men who sought better opportunities for themselves, promising them higher qualities of life in southeastern Ohio. 
Not only were the scams eerily similar to the first litre suspect's promises to Ronnie Jack in 1989, but Richard also bears a striking resemblance to an aged version of that infamous bearded man police sketch. While there are no accessible photos of Richard in the late 80s to make a true comparison, his height and theoretical weight match the first litre suspect, as well as his slicked back, ear-length hair, and full beard. And even though Richard would have been just 30 at the time of the Jack family disappearance, he could have been identified as older with a scraggly beard and imposing demeanour. Sadly though, the similarities end there. While it is conceivable that Richard could have lived in Prince George during early adulthood and moved to the Midwestern United States later on, there is no evidence of Richard ever residing in Canada during his life. Whoever the first Lita suspect was knew the surrounding areas well, making it likely they were a resident of British Columbia. In addition, Richard's victims do not match the Jack family's demographics. Both Ronnie and Doreen were just 26 years old with two young boys. The men in Richard's killings were all older white men in their late 40s and early 50s. Richard was also keen to influence his victims in bringing their belongings with them to Noble County, Ohio, robbing them first of their possessions before disposing of their bodies. This contrasts to the first litre suspect, who seemingly wasn't interested in the material value of the Jack family, who owned next to nothing, had no vehicle, nor could fit many belongings in the suspect's pickup truck when they left with him. The Jack family killer was likely after the people themselves. While Richard Beasley hasn't confessed to more killings throughout his life, investigators do believe there could be more victims, so while the Jack family probably don't fit that bill, the Craigslist killer is at least a prototype of the suspect we're looking for. A more local suspect with legitimate connections to the Highway of Tears is serial killer Bobby Jack Fowler. While only one victim is confirmed to have died by his hands, Fowler is a person of interest in 16 different murders in both Oregon and British Columbia. In fact, the RCMP believe Fowler could be responsible for up to 20 homicides across Northwest Canada. His modus operandi included driving across long stretches of road in beaten up old pickup trucks, picking up hitchhikers, and seducing women in grungy dive bars, often sexually assaulting his victims after tying them up and beating them with anything he could get his hands on. One investigator told reporters that he spent time in a Tennessee prison for rape and attempted murder after savagely beating a woman with her own belt and covering her with brush piles, leaving her to die. It's thought by some that Ronnie was another victim in Fowler's British Columbia bar prowls and that Fowler selected Ronnie when he heard about his wife, Doreen, and their two children, knowing their financial hardships would make them easy targets. Fowler also had potential extensive knowledge of the area, working at a roofing company called Happy's Roofing along the Highway 16 corridor in Prince George sometime in 1974. We've even found one report stating Fowler was known to frequent the first Lita pub specifically. However, we must emphasize that we cannot confirm this connection. If it is true, it's possible he was there in August of 1989 
and if he wasn't the bearded man, he could have a connection to the first Lita suspect, or be in cohorts with some sort of large operation abducting indigenous peoples in the vicinity. Much like Richard Beasley, however, there are more details in Fowler's case files to suggest he isn't the first Lita suspect than to suggest he is. First and foremost, Fowler's age and physical description simply does not match the bearded man. Fowler wasn't nearly as tall nor as bulky as the first Lita suspect, and had dark brown hair as opposed to reddish brown. He would also have been 50 years of age in 1989, a bit older than the suspected perpetrator. Fowler didn't target men or male children either, focusing on women traveling solo or lonely and inebriated women he found in the bars he visited. He certainly took advantage of unsuspecting people, but never displayed the wherewithal to kidnap an entire family and dispose of their bodies. Unfortunately, a confession from Fowler is impossible, seeing as he died in 2006, yet detectives still believe his despicable history is enough to warrant active consideration in the Jack family case. It should also be noted that not all the theories put forth revolve around serial killers. In fact, some have gone so far as to suggest that the first Lita suspect told Ronnie about the logging camp without the pretense of kidnapping or killing his family, but rather was honestly looking for hard workers due to the rigorous nature of the job. Then, when the family arrived at the camp, they were not compensated for their labor. Ronnie and Doreen could have made their dissatisfaction known, and instead of sorting the matter, the supervision decided it would be easier to make them disappear. Again though, this would have to mean the ranch actually existed. It is also hard to believe that anyone else at this logging camp would keep quiet about such a scandal. There would obviously be more people involved, and the cover-up would go to extensive lengths to be able to hide the murder of four individuals, including two children. It seems unlikely that investigators would not be able to locate the camp and search it for clues if the camp existed. Although it certainly is a compelling theory, there are perhaps too many coincidences for this to have been the case, and it makes little sense when all factors of the disappearance are strung together. A much more plausible theory comes from a specific circle of sleuths that believe Ronnie was behind his own family's vanishing. They claim that while Ronnie may have had a conversation with a bearded man at the First Liter pub the night of August 1st, 1989, no one has confirmed that what they discussed is what Ronnie informed his brother and mother of a few hours later. Some people wonder if Ronnie was looking for a way out of his current circumstances and hired the First Liter suspect to help him get out of the area whilst disposing of his wife and children. Then he called his relatives to establish a shoddy alibi and disappeared into the night, never to be heard from again. While we personally don't believe this theory holds much weight, there were warning signs that Ronnie may have a dark side. In an interview in 2017, Doreen's sister Marlene Jack spoke of how Doreen was a victim of domestic abuse, not just at the hands of their father, but at the hands of Ronnie too. The couple were never officially married, and despite having two children together, it was known that their relationship was not in the best standing. All that being said, as horrible as the domestic violence was, it does not immediately make Ronnie a cold-blooded killer, without any other evidence or testimony to suggest otherwise. 
In addition, the theories to suggest the Jack family left without a trace intentionally are too far-fetched for serious consideration. If Ronnie wanted to escape his current life, he could have fled by himself. And if he truly wanted Doreen and the boys to come with him, why call multiple family members to tell them you're leaving seconds before climbing into the truck of a stranger? Of course, these questions are left unanswered, but they must be raised when looking at the big picture. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan Jack's unsolved disappearances, we want to make known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each episode, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In the case of the Jack family, we firmly believe they were kidnapped in the early morning hours of August 2nd, in the hope that the first Lita suspect was truly going to make their lives better at the fairy tale logging camp. We believe that the first Lita suspect found Ronnie vulnerable in the pub that night, learned of his wife and children, and struck at their weakest moment. Knowing the patterns and tendencies of serial killers, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan were probably the perpetrator's intended targets, hunting women and children and using a desperate Ronnie as the vessel to reach them. We do not believe there was any job waiting for the Jack couple, and that the truck they climbed into at 1.26am transported them to their unfortunate fate. This leads us to the ultimate question of who was the first Lita suspect. Obviously, at this point in time, it's impossible to pinpoint an exact identity, but there is enough to profile a general feeling for who he could be. Firstly, it should be noted that the first Lita pub is infamous in Prince George for hosting the criminal element in the area. There are hundreds of bars around town, but locals have said there are none sketchier than the first Lita. It would make sense then for the first Lita suspect to use such a nefarious locale as their hub of operation, knowing they could blend in with the fellow villainy lurking in its shadows. This leads us to believe whoever he was, the bearded man was also intelligent. He knew how to pick Ronnie out from the crowd, and did so in a way he never came across as up to no good. The first Lita suspect was also an excellent con man, able to sell an opportunity that seemed too good to be true from the onset, but enticing enough to draw in any rational human being. Sadly, this is a widely used tactic amongst serial killers and repeat offenders, using job postings and false employment advertisements to attract potential victims. If you'll remember our episode on indigenous Canadian Amber Tukaro, you'll probably remember our profiling of known sex offender and serial rapist Pat Carson, who lured unsuspecting women and even couples to his horse ranch in Alberta with the guise of internships and life-changing opportunity. While nothing outside of his sexual assault charges have been proven, and while we do not believe him to be a suspect in the Jack family case, Pat Carson is living proof that these tactics work and that they are widely used. The bearded man is likely one of these types of criminals, cunning and subtle, hence why not even a trace of the Jacks have been uncovered. It should also be pointed out that because we do not have 100% confirmation that the family is dead, 
we do not have a killer's exact modus operandi to further wane the list of suspects. This last lingering uncertainty clouds the judgement of anyone who attempts to reconcile with this tragedy and makes concluding who might be at fault an immensely difficult task. Nevertheless, we will persist. Without a doubt, the best way of finding more clues and giving investigators the best chance at locating missing persons is raising awareness on the largest of scales, so that motivated minds may come together and recollect that one memory or one experience that will charge the search with newfound optimism. It is optimism that must flood the paths towards justice for Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan Jack. Optimism, not tears. For optimism is what drove these four souls into their final moments of happiness and contentment. This belief in a brighter future is probably the final bit of positive emotion each member felt, and therefore it will be the way we will memorialize their story. We will not let their legacy be that of the only family to ever go missing in Canada's history, nor let their legacy be just another tale of indigenous peoples abused in a desperate situation. Indigenous peoples across America and Canada struggle to have their stories heard as it is, and perpetuating the myth that it is somehow their fault they fell into the path of a criminal is a massive disservice to the individuals and their communities. The Jack family may have had their troubles, but they were people and deserve to be heard like anyone else. Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan are more than statistics, and it's about time them and their fellow missing peers along Highway 16 in British Columbia are given the appropriate coverage. The Jack family and their hardworking character had stories that were not over. They could have overcome their struggles and been examples of perseverance and changed the world for the better. And in fact, they still could. There is a chance that the Jack family is still out there, waiting to be found, waiting to be saved. And so we continue to strive to give answers to the surviving Jack family members, and bring those missing out of the shadowed night of August 2nd, 1989, and into the light of the breaking dawn. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective Podcast. Should you wish to delve deeper into the mystery, you can follow the case file link included in the show notes, which contains important photographs, documents, maps, and further reading relevant to the case. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in a fortnight with a new episode.